0: Ava Hartling, welcome to The Brand is Female. For this episode, I spoke with Diana Cohen, the New York City-based founder and CEO of Crown Affair, a haircare brand that launched less than a year ago and was immediately met with editorial and commercial success. That will be no surprise when you hear about Diana's stellar career path. She is, after all, a graduate of unicorn startups from Into the Gloss, better known today as Glossier, Spring, the e-commerce mobile app, Tamara Mellon, and she also consulted with Away, Harry's, Outdoor Voices, The Wing and more. We spoke about what it means to be part of that generation of young women who are breaking glass ceiling and showing us what is achievable with a strong vision, confidence and a close connection to your audience. Before we go to my conversation with Diana, let's hear from our partners at TD Women Entrepreneurs who make this season of the podcast possible. This season of our podcast is brought to you by TD Bank Group, Women Entrepreneurs. TD helps women entrepreneurs achieve success and growth through its program of educational workshops, financing, and mentorship. Visit thebrandisfemale.com slash podcast and follow the link to find out how TD can support you. And we'll start recording. So Diana, it's a pleasure having you on The Brand is Female. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you
1: for having me. I'm so excited to be here.
0: And I always start these conversations by going back in time a little bit. And I want to talk about uh, growing up as a little girl. Did you ever dream of being an entrepreneur? Did you ever dream of having uh, a career in a specific industry? And and what what were you imagining for, for your professional life later on?
1: Yeah. I mean, my childhood is probably my biggest source of inspiration today. And I look back on it now and I don't think I had the vocabulary or language for it at the time, but I was a total tomboy when I was younger and incredibly adventurous. And I like did all of the sports. It's so funny. I did karate. I was talking to a friend the other day about like how kind of building that resilience in a physical way as a as a child was has been so impactful for my entrepreneurial journey today. Um, but you know, at the time, you don't kind of connect those dots. Um, I had a very big inflection point in middle school um, where I kind of caught the art and design bug. I had an mm. incredible art teacher. Um, and I definitely became the kid that kind of hung out in the art room after class and, you know, really just fully, I just fell in love with design and art and New York. And I I grew up in a small town in South Florida. Um, My parents are both New Yorkers, but you know, I grew up down here. It's kind of snoozy, you know, people are just, Mm -hmm. it's very typical suburbs. So, um, no, and at the end of middle school, I just kind of became obsessed with this world, and I would subscribe to all of the fashion magazines and art magazines, okay. and you know, rip things out and put them on my wall with mood boards. And I'm still a very big believer in like mood boarding and manifesting for your life. So that really planted the early seeds of um, wanting to be a part or adjacent in that industry, even if I wasn't necessarily a designer or a creative in in a very traditional respect. I knew that I just wanted to be surrounded by it. And um, actually in eighth grade, I ended up making a Tumblr. This was like early days of Tumblr. Okay, yeah. Where I used to reblog style.com content, RIP style.com, <laughs> but it was like my favorite kind of offshoot of Vogue. And mm-hmm. you know, that was really the beginning of like the underbelly of the internet as we know it now. Ooh. You know, so many people, we all are empowered to have our own platforms and tell our own stories. But you know, it was very much the gatekeepers, Um, the idea of working at one of these publications was a true dream. Um, Ironically, by the time I actually went to college, um, these industries were starting to fall apart. So, Mm. you know, and I think we see this today across publishing. um, And by apart, I mean, more just transforming. And I think the power has really shifted. So um, it's been fascinating to watch those conversations change and kind of lead me to where I am today. So tell me about choosing a a field of
0: studies and, um, uh, you know, were you more interested in in the business side of fashion or was something like journalism? And I I know you ended up doing something slightly different, but tell me about that choice, you know, kind of thinking about that future
1: career path. So I just knew that I wanted to be in New York um, at the time. I wasn't super clear Love on that. what yeah, what the job or role would be. So I was really lucky. I went to New York University um, and it became pretty clear that I, I loved art history and I really wanted to dive into that world. Um, now I recognize it as just a deep desire to tell stories and like bring mm-hmm. meaning out of something that makes you feel something. Um, but I also knew that I didn't want to go into the art world, whether that was work at a museum, a traditional institution, a gallery. There were a couple startups at the time like Artsy and Paddley, but Mm -hmm. I was actually never like personally curious about that industry. Um, And I, you know, my dad's an entrepreneur um, and I grew up with him working from home and building businesses. And I think I just, I've always been a risk taker. I think that this is, you know, there's, I have so many friends who love being at bigger companies and bigger corporations. And, you know, I've been so lucky to be reached out to by brands in my career, like the Nikes of the world. But I've always been the person who's like, I would rather work with Phil Knight in the eighties, you know, even if it was just like a tiny little office with a broken filing cabinet. Like I've just always been really addicted to that kind of culture and impact. So, um, art while I love it. That is not the way that that industry goes. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I just, I I really just fell in love with art history and then was interning at a range of different fashion houses. And um, my last internship, which turned into a full-time role, was at a beauty website, um, which had a couple interviews at the time. Um, but it, it was, it was into the gloss back in 2012, mm-hmm. um, yeah, which has yeah. now obviously become Glossier. But I think just having a desire to work with people who were inspiring was really what led me more so than um, like picking a type of company or a type of career.
0: Were there women around you specifically that uh, that you drew inspiration from or women that kind of marked uh, your life at that point and and give you uh, uh, give you ideas for for what you would you would be doing later or women that you just looked up to in general?
1: Yes. I mean, I I think I've always been really drawn to women who have a balance of like empathy, but also a business sensibility to them. So, you know, I was really fortunate to work with Emily early days. This was pre-Glossier. It was like a one room Mm -hmm. Glofus and it was primarily an editorial site. But that was when you really got to see, I I always joke that I was kind of like born in the comment section. I used to like moderate the comments on all of these articles and engage with people. And you really get a sense for your community and your customers and how that is an entire ecosystem. And I think that grassroots feeling um, has always been what I've been Kind of attracted to, and I got really lucky. I actually met a woman um, at a party when I was working at Into the Gloss, named Era Katz, and she um, she's the co-founder of a company now called Seed, which is a probiotics and mm-hmm. biotic company out in LA. Um, but at the time, she was one of the founding members of Beach which was like early vertically integrated kind of d2c e-commerce paired with a celebrity so it was like Mm style Mint with ashley and mary kate olson and like shoe Mint with rachel bilson and it was again like 2012 so it was just kind of a different world than what we know today but um i remember meeting her at this party and i remember i had to go home later that night to like transcribe an interview for into the gloss prepare for a photo shoot And we just, she's like, I'm going to hire you one day. You totally, we just really vibed. And I was like, you are so cool and live in LA. And like, you know, it was just a different world. And she actually ended up calling me a few months later saying that she was launching a mobile shopping app, um, which has since sold, it was called spring at the time. This was back in 2013. Um, and it was early mobile commerce, e-commerce and, um, that, that opportunity to work with someone like her to really understand storytelling, launch a business, and then ultimately work on a team that was incredibly engineer led. I mean, it was 80% of the business was engineers and you know, designers mm-hmm. and UX and UI designers. And that you know opened up my universe to understanding e-commerce as we know it today, mm-hmm. um, which I don't think I would have had the opportunity to really understand in the same way had I stayed on the editorial and purely marketing side right that makes sense
0: what were some of the the biggest lessons because you were one of the lucky few to be exposed to kind of that shift you know from into the gloss becoming glossier and uh becoming the the legend that we know it to be today um what were some of the biggest lessons
1: that you observed being you know on the ground during that period first and foremost your customer and community are everything um Mm -hmm. you know the last 5 to 10 years we've seen a lot of companies launch and they're like this is quote direct to consumer you know we're cutting out the middleman but really the product is the same it's slightly better homogenous branding at the end of the day you know the approach of growth at all costs is not going to build a great brand and i think early days of into the gloss and glossier it was incredibly democratized everyone had a voice in you know the making of products the development of it all you know, Emily was a huge storyteller herself. So I think, I think that was really the early lesson. And so often, especially as women, you know, we're taught, I definitely have the perfectionist gene, which is like, you have to constantly learn to actually let people in on your process. Mm -hmm. Um, Not only is it healthier, and the end product will end up being better for you. But I also am a firm believer that people support what they're a part of creating. So when you do finally launch your brand or your product or whatever it is you're working on, all those people that you brought in on the journey are going to be so much more supportive and invested in what you're building. And often those people will end up being your biggest supporters long-term. Right. Right.
0: So you worked under two uh, fierce female leaders uh, at Glossier and at Seed. And you're, you know, you had your own business today, which I want to get to in a second. But um, are there qualities to female leaders? Is there something specific about female leadership as compared to male leadership that uh, that, you, that
1: is striking to you? Yes, I think empathy is the most important thing as a leader and being humble. Um, I learned from both, honestly, all of my, all of the people I've worked for that, like, it's okay to all for all of us to sit on the floor and like collaborate together. I think when there's so much hierarchy, at least in a startup env- environment, um, it creates a sense of fear and, mm-hmm. you know, learning that it's okay to take the time you need for yourself. It's, it actually makes you a better marketer and storyteller by being empathetic and understanding what, what someone is seeing, I also think being honest is really important and having, you know, direct conversations as women, <laughs> we talk a lot, you know, through, we're, we're able to kind of process and identify our emotions, I think in a way not unless, you know, male leaders really do the work to, to understand it. It's a lot more, it's just a bit more fluid, I think, when women connect and and that ends up making for a better business at the end of the day. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. I, I love that, and, and I agree with that a hundred percent. And you went on to launch your own brand, which uh, I believe came uh, came to, uh, to, to to be unveiled a few months before COVID, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Yeah, six weeks before COVID. Yeah, no. yeah. <laughs> it's been so a crazy year.
0: chronic care because it's been. Um, I mean, the brand. Uh, you know, drew attention from the start. Uh, you've had buy-in from editors, from consumers, a growing social media presence. Obviously, uh, so I'd love to hear more about how the idea came to you to launch Crown Affair and how uh, how the the whole process of bringing it to life uh, took place and unfolded.
1: Yeah, so after leaving working with Era, I actually had a two year period where I was consulting with a range of consumer brands, <laughs> and that period was so critical in me understanding how to run different types of businesses, launch different types of products. And I was very much nights and weekends working on crown affair during that time. So, um, you know, people often ask like, how do you know when you're ready to start a business Where did you stop your full-time job and then launch this? Like I love being really transparent that it has been a very long work in pro- progress the last two years of building crown affair. Um, and I've always been the friend that is obsessed with hair care and you know girlfriends whether it was post pregnancy or you know a change in environment they moved from New York to LA or you know they just really never took time to pause they always you know felt really disempowered in that relationship to their hair if they weren't getting it professionally blown out or sitting with a stylist and over time I just became that person and Really to streamline and make my life more efficient, I put everything into a Google Doc so I didn't have to keep like copy pasting the same email. And the doc went viral, like relatively viral. It wasn't like millions of views or anything, but you know, a dozen, literally almost a hundred people who I did not know were in the doc looking and viewing at my hair care ritual. And a couple things really sparked it for me, knowing that there was a space here to to build something that was different. The first is that people were commenting and it was so clear there's very little guidance or education outside of tutorials and styling. And it's a very professional driven industry. And I recognize that I am one woman with my own hair and it was so cool to share that journey with people so then they could kind of feel empowered to go on their own, Um, you know, I would say to someone like, it's crazy that you'd go to a hotel, you would never like expect them to have your skincare. But like, we just we use whatever's in the shower, you know, and these ingredients are different. And it changes the way your hair feels and look. And, um, you know, I started to really just see if I could make my take all of my favorite formulas, you know, from really luxury salon quality products, you know, like $60 shampoos, $200 hairbrushes, and make improved versions that were cleaner, um, and really create a brand. I think this category has been so dated for so long. Um, a lot of the, a lot of the brands are really rooted in like fashion, you know, hairstyl- French hairstylist, French hairstylists who used to do like covers of Vogue, which I love, and I'm totally here for hair is art, but, you know, or like overly kind of girly and weird names and everything's yeah. so colorful. And I'm like, this does not look nice next to my bireto and Dr. Barbara Sturm, you know, or and I just exactly I it just became so clear that no one was really buying hair care because they felt excited about it. Um so that that is where that started. And um I was really self-funding it for a while until I had my first samples from Italy and Switzerland of our brush and our comb and some early samples of the oil, which has now become like a cult product over the last 10 months that we've been live and people saw a change in their hair. And I was like, there is something here. So we decided to, um, I realized I didn't want to take on any more clients with my consulting business. And okay. it felt right to raise money and and start this business, which we launched, as you noted, uh, January 28th. So o- almost 11 months ago now, a few weeks before the global pandemic. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's, it's funny because in the past few months, I've had conversations with several new brands and founders who literally launched just as COVID was starting to, to happen. Um, and, and obviously, launch has been successful. So I want to come back to that. But I want to ask you about the decision to, uh, to go and find financing. And that's, I know that's something that a lot of women entrepreneurs struggle with when they're creating a brand and getting off the ground you know, is it about you know? Do they focus on retaining equity and growing an audience first, or do they turn to um, the financing route right away? So, could you tell me a little bit about what motivated your decision and why that made sense for you?
1: Yeah, so I think it really depends on your business. For us, the reason we decided to raise capital was strictly due to inventory. Um, there are minimum order quantities. I I had self-funded it. I saved about fifty thousand dollars to work on samples and do product development, but there was a very clear tipping point that if I was going to actually place a PO with somebody that I needed to have, you know, separate funding. Um, Mm -hmm. I say, and you know, if you are a service or an app or a platform and you're able to create an MVP, a minimum viable product in a way that you can just build a community and audience, um, you know, maybe fundraising, isn't the right route for you. Maybe start there and see what you can build. But that was really the, the core decision as to why we decided to raise capital. Um, and then the other thing that i always say to people and is is that when you go into these meetings and you decide you're going to going to meet with investors remember that this is an opportunity for them yes mm-hmm. it's great mm-hmm. if you're able to raise money but ultimately you're going to put your heart and soul into what you're building for the next however long you know decade plus of building this business and they're very lucky to be able to invest in you. Um, So as you negotiate a term sheet, understand how much you want to raise and and in what format, like you have to remember that. Um, And that my other recommendation having come from a lot of businesses that had potentially over raised, um, you know, you, you end up kind of getting caught on this treadmill of like, we raised this, so we have to raise an A and a B and then you don't really yeah. focus on profitability. I think a lot of the companies that I worked for were really focused on revenue without actually looking mm-hmm. at profits. You know, if you spend a million dollars on paid marketing and then you make a million dollars, it's like what what's the value there? You know, or mm-hmm. if you're doing a few million a month and you're so you know it's and your overhead is that much. I think there's much more focus on profitability now. So how you raise and specifically how much we raised was very, targeted in terms of the allocation um, from wages to inventory to like everything. And um, I think, yeah, just don't overraise. Raise what you need enough to do something, but, you know, not too much that you end up kind of getting buried in a hole. Mm-hmm. That yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I want to
0: ask you as well because you know I think the the when we when we hear of VCs and you know investors um, and we often hear of of women telling the story of pitching uh, you know to to VCs, uh, uh, whether it's in the U.S. or or globally. And it's, you know, the financing world is male-dominated. We're used to the typical tech startup, uh, you know, going for rounds of funding. So tell me about that experience as a young woman pitching to to VCs, equity firms, and so on. And do you feel that that culture is changing now because we've had a number of successful, uh, you know, startups led by women that have, you know, achieved uh amazing success that uh the you know the industry is is a lot more open to female founders coming to present their projects to them
1: for sure my first investor meeting it was an angel investor but my first investor meeting was with a man who was bald so I walked into the room (laughs) to talk about hair care and it was I love it it was it was honestly one of the best experiences and lessons for me because that having that be my first meeting um not only did he give me great advice he runs a very, very successful sock company. And I asked him, I was like, how do you, which sounds random, but I'm like, how do you sell socks? Like I have Mm -hmm. a drawer full of them. You can go on Amazon. And he actually gave me the advice that you just have to point out to people everything they don't realize they need. So for them, it was a seamless toe, you know, having arch. And then you look at your foot and you're like, why is there a seam in my sock? And He didn't end up investing and he's a friend now and he's given me great advice. So I think first and foremost, just recognizing that this is an incredible experience to get advice and knowledge and not worrying about the actual investment is the first Mm -hmm. part of the process that can be transformative as a woman, as a man, whatever, going into these meetings and just like having really great conversations will end up informing you later down the line. I took over 200 investor meetings. Um, wow! So it's it's emotionally it's you really have to charge yourself for it in the right way to right. tell your story and. It is a lot like dating. I haven't dated in a while, but you know, it it is a I've, I've been with my fiance for 7 years, yes. so it was kind of funny to like go back and feel like I was dating people and um, you know, you you either connect and get hit it off yeah. with them and you know, yeah. I I do think I'm I'm very transparent about the fact that coming from so many consumer brands, I was also one of the first employees at Away, I worked with Outdoor mm-hmm. Voices, I launched Harry the Razor company's women's line. So I was fortunate to be able to walk into these rooms and people know that I had a background in consumer. Um I also think, and I love this point. I do think that I'm maybe not okay to say, but I actually think women can be better marketers, especially around consumer products, because mm. so often the end consumer is women. It's I, a woman, I, absolutely. Yeah. It's a woman. And, you know, I happen to be in beauty. So, even more so as a category, but across every category, suitcases, mattresses, like, really being able to get into the headspace and psychology of the consumer, I think is so powerful, especially as the founder. And at the end of the day, like, the world can change. We've seen this. Like, you know, investors could have invested in a company that was all about physical spaces or memberships Mm -hmm. or, you know, something, travel. Like that, you know, you have to be able to pivot and turn on a dime and be nimble. So at the end of the day, for your first fundraise, it is about the investor investing in you, knowing that your business plan will change. So that's really how I approach these conversations, whether it was with men or women. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm very fortunate to not in the, in context to your question, I think fundraising for tech is very different coming from consumer. I definitely feel empowered as a woman. And I think regardless of who is on the other side of the conversation, like they, they get that. Um, if I was Mm -hmm. selling, if I was selling Uber or like a high growth tech company, it would probably be be different. different and more challenging in that respect.
0: I love the story of of your first pitch being the bald man, <laughs> but it, it reminds me too. And you you brought up a good point because I, I spent a lot of time in a in a jewelry luxury industry um, before doing what I'm doing now. And I used to be uh, it used to surprise me so much, and and it, it was something I couldn't get my head around that it was mostly men working, you know, in marketing or branding or even product in the jewelry industry, where clearly. of the market is women who are, you know, who are wearing the pieces, but I think we've come a long way and you're, you know, you're part of that, that new generation that is, um, that is really setting a a new, a new, uh, um, uh, a new direction for how women can uh, create brands, run them, successfully fund them. Um, so tell me about those first few weeks. How did it feel when Crown Affair was finally out in the market? And was there a point where it felt like, okay, this is actually going to be successful. And, you know, I'm actually going to be having a, a success on my hands here, or yeah. maybe you're still waiting for that point. I don't
1: know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I feel so fortunate. Um, the response to our launch, I think again, like, I've lived in New York for 11 years. I've been able to build a community of both men and women who were excited about what I was launching. But, you know, so launch day was incredible. I mean, coverage in Vogue, Business of Fashion, I mean, allure. And I also think that, you know, the truth is, is I really believe in our message and our mission, which is around care um, Mm -hmm. versus it. You know, I think a lot of editors were like kind of didn't, you know, they're so used to being maybe pitched Or introduced to a hair care brand where it's like, you're going to meet with the stylist who is teaching you how to do this thing. And it was actually a bit of a reversal and really focusing around time and this moment to just pause and brush your hair or apply an oil and have it really be almost like a no makeup, makeup version of hair. Um, So that
0: turned out to work perfectly,
1: sorry to interrupt you, but COVID, (laughs) which you couldn't have predicted, but turned out to be perfect. I remember turning to my team because all of our collateral, like if you order even our shippers, our set boxes, you know, we've trademarked, take your time, like everything all months, you know, months before the pandemic happened. And, you're totally right. I mean, six weeks in, we're all on lockdown and people can't get to their stylist and their salons. And they're now for the first time reorienting themselves around care. And you know, I'm so grateful that people really resonated with the brand and the message early on. But to actually see people that I did not know become obsessed with the product was the tipping point for me where I was like, we're really onto something here. And there's been kind of short milestones. I think the three month mark, which, you know, beauty is such a word of mouth category. Even if you have an influencer or a publisher being like, this hair oil will change your life. It's so different because X, Y, Z. I think for all of us, it's more powerful if your best friend or your mom is like, wait, have you heard of Crown Affair? Like I'm obsessed with this right. thing and you have to get it. And in a weird way, that's been one of the challenges because people aren't going to lunch or brunch or parties or things in the same way. So really trying to figure out how to spread that surface area digitally has been, I think Mm -hmm. one of the biggest challenges, but also has opened so much for us creatively as a brand. Um, but you know, every three months we kind of see like an uptick and the repeat purchases come in. So that has been so incredible to see. Um, Mm. and Yeah, I I really do. I mean, I feel like we're in a movement right now. It is definitely going to take time, but empowering women to take time out of care instead of frustration, Mm -hmm. Um, where -hmm. where skincare and color cosmetics have been so democratized. And, you know, it's a smaller business. I mean, skincare is a business. If you're a brand at Sephora or color cosmetics, you know, you're doing hundreds of millions a year. Like, the right. top performing brands at these retailers are still doing around, you know, 30 to 80 million, which is so incredible and very successful. But it's just a slightly slower category because it's been so driven by wholesale and salon for so long.
0: True, right. And mm-hmm. um, what would be your advice to a young woman who is thinking about starting her own brand, her own business, but also keeping in mind that we are still in this new reality of, you know, COVID lockdown? It's changed the way we shop. It's it's changed what we buy and 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 the companies we choose to support as well. So, what would you be what would you be saying to a young
1: woman who has that dream at the moment? I mean. Taking the temperature of how people are consuming and changing their shopping habits, I, I actually think that this is an incredible moment to really pause and pay attention to that. And while, you know, it was crazy to launch and then have this happen, but I'm so grateful that this is in our DNA as a brand. I think it's made us internally more kind and empathetic to each other. You know, everyone, whether it's your team members or a customer, is going through is moving through the world in a very different way. You you know, what's happening in their personal life, their professional life. Like it's, you really have to be mindful, I think, as a founder to understand the message and the product you're putting into the world compared to our fast paced, go, 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 not really evaluate what the decisions we were making in the same way. And mm-hmm. to that point, um, you know, all of our products at Crown Affair are like made by craftsmen in Italy and Switzerland, or all of our formulas are made by chemists in Japan. And Mm -hmm. I do think there has been a shift to buying fewer better. So if you Mm -hmm. are, if you are in the consumer space, um, and we are starting to see this very, the reality is there is a division of, of consumers and how people shop. So I think as a brand, it's, it's much better to create higher quality, better product that might Mm -hmm. skew a bit more luxury, um, than, than something that's mastiche, um, right. Or like more contemporary. And we've seen this in the retail and apparel space, you know, like Mm -hmm. people are still shopping the row and Chanel and luxury Mm -hmm. brands that have really built this brand equity. And then of course, fast fashion and in beauty, people will still go to drugstores, get their awesome, fun, quick buys, but Mm -hmm. everything else in the middle, I think, um, it's going to have a little bit more of a challenging time. So I I would say that on consumer and, you know, really meet your girl or meet your customer um, where they are. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, direct to consumer was very popular and started 10 years ago because it cut out the middleman. But I do think there are retailers and even communities that can be way more powerful than your just direct channel to your, to your audience. So, you know, in retail beauty is, Is powerful, you know, being able to be on Violet Gray or Goop or Mm -hmm. in Toronto, uh, G Beauty is like one of our amazing partners. And, you know, yeah, you know, and I think people really trust um, those those retailers and partners. So I would say that as well, like explore beyond just what you're doing if you are in consumer
0: hmm. Okay. That's that's really good advice. So one question I was excited to ask you, given the, the focus of your brand is you're, you're a busy uh, entrepreneur with a, a new startup. Um, and I know I know you always have a, a million projects you are involved in different causes, including art. Um, what's something that you do for uh, care and mindfulness? And, you know, with what's been going on over the past few months, how do you stay grounded amidst all the, the chaos in our world?
1: Pre-pandemic, going to a museum or show would just fill me up. That was how I kind of resourced my energy and got inspired. Um, It's obviously more challenging now. Museums have started to open back up again, and it's actually been quite beautiful to be able to go to these spaces at 25% capacity. Um, But I'm obviously, yeah, it's been, I'm like the Met and no one's here, but um, it's just (laughs) been lovely. But, you know, I have such... I'm a believer for not just myself, but my whole team to embody the ethos of our company. Like, how can we be telling people to take their time and slow down if we're not doing that? And there's definitely um, a, a concept, you know, people assume, you know, hustle culture, no sleep. We really glamorize overworking. And I'm very grateful that over the last five years, like even, you know, burnout has been brought to the surface as being a real problem and you know mm-hmm. workaholism is a real thing and i think there's less of a stigma than traditional addictions because it's seen as a good thing but finding that harmony not even balance but finding the harmony between work and life and i i actually don't even like that saying that because work this is just all your life you know mm-hmm. and i think separating it is for me and what I love doing doesn't empower kind of the structures that I need. So every morning I journal for 30 minutes, um, Mm -hmm. which has been so cathartic to just get anything on the page. And I used to journal at night, but I found that in the morning I'm able to just work through anything in my head. So when I come to my computer to work or get on calls, I'm really clear. Um, I'm also a huge stretcher and foam roller. I like bring my okay. foam roller places. <laughs> like I'll go travel with friends before this. I mean, and they'll be like, you brought a foam roller with you. I'm like, yes, I
0: need it. I support that a hundred percent. It really makes a difference. And it, it, it's easy to travel with.
1: So easy. So that, and then I, I do, I take baths about twice a week. I, mm-hmm. I am my fiance always jokes, he's like, your rituals have just become your life because I really do take my time in the bathroom. And, you know, I I make it a whole spa experience. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think there was a idea that, you know, self care was just for Sundays, but I'm really a believer in in integrating it into your daily life in small ways. So that's been huge for me. And I think it allows you to find balance because there are so many projects and so many things that I love being a part of. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm also very introverted in ways and I I need that time. And I think making sure you create those structures and time for yourself so you can show up for everything else is essential. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Couldn't agree more. Um, And my favorite question to ask women on the show
1: is what do you wish women would do more of? I have to take my own advice, but say no. (laughs) I wish we would all say no more. And it, it's challenging. And I think it is our, the empathy that we're talking about is like our greatest strength and our greatest weakness, like being empathetic and wanting to help with everything makes us incredible leaders, incredible storytellers. Um, But it can also really stretch us too thin. And I'm so grateful that there's been a shift, I think, in traditional roles in the workplace or at home that like, it's very clear, you know, if you're working and leading a business that like, you need that time and space, um, whatever your other commitments and responsibilities are. But and there's an understanding there, right? The expectation of traditional roles for women has changed. But um, Mm -hmm. I think saying no is is one of the hardest things because it feels kind of crummy when you do it. But it ends up having such a big upside. So we all need to empower each other and, and be empathetic with you, whether you're giving a no or getting a no. Um exactly. Yeah. I think. And I've definitely like I've had people where I'm like, oh, let's find time to connect. And they're like, not now. And I'm and I get it because they're also founders, or vice versa. And I've had to say it. And, you know, the the intention is never for people to be like, oh, she's so busy. You know, it's wording it in a way that actually is respectful to each other. So I think yeah. for all of us to find that. Common ground would be really empowering,
0: mm-hmm. and that's such a great point. Um, and I'm a big believer in, in learning to say no. I'm also still working on that, but accepting other other women's no's or other people's no's, and and being respectful of, of their of their response is is key here. Um, and and viewing a no a different way than we have in the past, right? Viewing it for the person choosing their own mental health or you know whatever is driving that decision. So that's that's a really great one well thank you so much and it was a pleasure catching up with you i can't wait to see what's next for crown affair we'll keep our eyes out and uh, all the best for what's to come
1: thank you so much for having me it was an honor to be on and thank you for creating the space and community um, for women it's it's so important
0: I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And as always, it makes a difference if you subscribe, uh, give us a review. Thank you to TD Bank Group Women Entrepreneurs for their support of The Brand is Female. You've got it in you to succeed. Let TD help guide you. Visit the slash podcast and click on a TD logo. I look forward to speaking to you in a week with a new guest on the show. Take care.